Our neighbors have an old tree, a big, big tree. It's got a section on it that we're concerned about a little bit. We've talked about how it could fall and hit their house or it could fall and hit our house. There was an atheist who had an old tree in his backyard, and during a storm, that tree fell on his neighbor's house. And so he called the insurance company to see if he was covered. Well, his insurance agent was a church-going man and knew at the same time that this guy had no belief in God. And so with this in mind, the agent responded, if your tree fell over because it was dead, we cannot cover the expense. You'll have to pay for the repairs on your neighbor's home yourself. However, if the tree fell because of an act of God, your insurance will cover it. So which one do you consider it to be? Well, faith and authority are two issues in that story as well as in today's gospel passage. It's a story within a story in which Jesus, with his touch, heals two people, two people with curious commonalities and differences. One commonality was 12 years. The child was 12 years old. The woman had been bleeding for 12 years. One commonality was Jairus was talking about his daughter, and Jesus, when he healed the woman, called her daughter. We might say that the woman had a slow leak. She had spent all that she had on health care. That's a little too familiar for comfort, isn't it? But she found that she only got worse. And so in desperation, she sought Jesus. She didn't listen anymore to the other authorities. At Jairus' house, once Jesus got there, there were paid mourners weeping and wailing, as was the practice at the time. And these were the ones who laughed at Jesus when he said that the child was not dead but sleeping. The funeral arrangements were already in process. What could he be thinking? But Jairus, who was a leader in the temple, recognized an authority higher than his own in Jesus. And he followed Jesus anyway. He put his faith in Jesus and not in the voices, the many voices of others that were loud and found his daughter to be healed. So one of the questions that these, this passage brings to mind is, what does it mean for us to put our faith in Jesus? Last week you heard someone else's voice from this pulpit. This week, through me, you'll hear the voice of another person, Pastor Kate Laser. She had a notable homily on this passage in the journal Christian Century, and I hope I will interpret her voice appropriately. As the stories in today's passage begin, Jesus is recrossing the Sea of Galilee after some local unpleasantness cut short his visit to an area called the Decapolis, where Jesus has healed a Gerasene that had unclean spirits. 
In that passage, the early part of Mark 5, the word beg is used three times in that story, and then it's used again in our story today. So in the early part of Mark, the demons beg Jesus not to send them out of the country. The local farmers beg Jesus to go away and not bother them anymore. And then the former demoniac, newly clothed and in his right mind for the first time in years, begs to accompany Jesus back to Galilee. Now, back in his own neighborhood, Jesus is confronted by Jairus, a prominent leader in the community, who begs him to come lay hands on his daughter and heal her. In Markan stories, these contrasting reactions to Jesus are repeated many times. There are some people who are determined to get rid of Jesus, and then there are others who are willing to push through any barrier to get near him. There were people who dug through a neighbor's roof and lowered their paralyzed friend to Jesus. That's the second group. The same with the Syrophoenician woman who begs and goes on begging Jesus to heal her daughter, ignoring his curt dismissal. Blind Bartimaeus shouts at the top of his lungs as everyone tries to hush him. And then there's also the woman with a jar of costly ointment who barges into a house where she is not welcome and pours her life savings on Jesus' head. These are the ones who are willing to break through any barrier to get to Jesus. So Mark says the truest test of faith is whether it will let anything stand in its way. Jairus has a reputation and a position to uphold. It would probably be better for him not to be seen talking to Jesus, let alone inviting him to his house. But Jairus, this temple leader who knows that other temple leaders are trying to get rid of Jesus, is willing to stand up in front of a bunch of onlookers, and he pleads with Jesus until he gets his way. The woman with the flow of blood is supposed to avoid all human contact. She was called unclean and wasn't supposed to touch anyone else because she would make them unclean. And yet she is among this throng of people All of these bodies pressing towards Jesus, trying to hear what he is saying or trying to just be near this person with a strange sense of holiness. And she pushes through, stretching out her arm to him as he passes by. She's healed where she stands. These people are boundary crossers, just as Jesus is. Jairus The woman and Jesus are all willing to bend the rules. Jesus goes against convention for the sake of God's kingdom. He flouts the purity code and brushes aside the distinctions of gender and class. And so do the mostly nameless men and women who come to him begging for help. Kate Laser asks, 
Where are these boundary crossers today? Where are these seekers today? Where are these beggars who won't take no for an answer, who insist on getting close to Jesus and not letting anything stand in their way? Do we see them pushing their way into our church? Do we go searching for them and maybe can't find them? Has everyone who wants to find Jesus already found him? There are some who have visited churches that bear his name and have decided that he's not inside. Their experience of church is like having a thrifty relative save a box that once had chocolates in it and gives it to you at Christmas with half a dozen white handkerchiefs. Now, there's nothing wrong with white handkerchiefs. They're useful and proper and maybe remind you of your grandmother. But what you were really hoping for, yearning for, craving was chocolate. Chocolate with chili pepper in it, the kind you get in Central America that's fiery and rich and satisfying. No one is going to break a sweat elbowing his or her way into church for white handkerchiefs. It's not a tame Jesus that people are craving. They want the genuine, the undomesticated Savior, the one who loves fiercely and speaks sharply, who looks us in the eye and speaks to us of God's uncompromising love, who startles us with more forgiveness than we think we deserve, who challenges us to extend the same to others. They want the Jesus who commands us to love enemies, serve the poor, and see ourselves in the stranger. They want the Jesus who makes them cry in church, not out of sadness, but because, like the hemorrhaging woman, after long years of trying everything else, they've brushed up against him and felt something inside them begin to heal. And they felt a love reawakening in them when they thought it was gone for good. What barriers do we inside the church have to push through in order to find our ways back to Jesus? Our most crucial question may be, what do we have to set aside so that people who come into contact with us can sense Jesus' irresistible pull on their lives, calling them to discipleship, calling them to joy? Jerry Adler wrote in Newsweek that the astronomer Carl Sagan was fascinated by the phenomenon that educated adults with the wonders of science manifest all around them could cling to beliefs based on the unverifiable testimony of observers dead for almost 2,000 years. That would be us. One time he said to cleric Joan Brown Campbell, You're so smart. Why do you believe in God? And she found this to be a surprising question from someone who had no trouble accepting the existence of black holes, which no one has ever observed. And she said, you're so smart. Why don't you believe in God? But Sagan never wavered in his agnosticism. His wife 
after he died in 96, said, There was no deathbed conversion, no appeals to God, no hope for an afterlife, no pretending that he and I, who had been inseparable for 20 years, were not saying goodbye forever. Didn't he want to believe, she was asked. Carl never wanted to believe, she replied fiercely. He wanted to know. I see our scientific brains as one of the many obstacles that keep us from acting on the fierce love we have experienced from Jesus but may not openly share. Think about for yourselves or maybe for others you have seen, and I'm going to invite you into conversation again. What are some of the barriers that keep us from expressing openly the love that we have sensed? Besides, say, shyness. What are some others? Fear of rejection? Rejection? What else? Ridicule? Okay. Couldn't hear. Pride? Good. Our own uncertainties and doubts, perhaps? Peer pressure? Reputation? Ego? These keep us from reaching out to others with the healing touch of Jesus. Can we overcome them? Laser says, maybe the main line meaning the mainline church, isn't dead but only sleeping. Maybe we only need to get out of the way so Jesus can get in. Maybe we're sleeping in the doorways of the church. He's waiting and longing for us to throw off all constraints and obey only our need for him. And he hopes, like these others, that will refuse to take no for an answer. Let's pray. God of boldness, we see the people you have sent as examples to us, and we admire them. But Lord, help us to be like them. We pray for boldness in this week ahead, that you would give us the strength that we need to overcome those challenges of pride and reputation and fear and reach out to heal others on your behalf. We pray in the name of Jesus, our holy Lord. Amen.